Welcome to the International Evangelical Church. Uh, we're glad you joined us here uh, this Sunday. Well, I was talking with a lot of our team, our staff this week, and I always like learning about culture and things here in Ethiopia, and I realized Easter is a very bloody holiday in Ethiopia. Well, that doesn't sound very good, right? But coming from the United States, the food we eat, we don't really realize they used to be animals, okay? Nobody ever, we never saw those, we never saw the food we eat be an animal. We don't realize that connection that, hey, eating chicken, they used to be alive and they had to die for you to eat them. That's not the case here. I love driving around the city and being reminded. I see people with goats, sheep, chickens. I've seen more chickens this past week than I've ever seen, I think, in my life. Everywhere people have chickens. Somebody on my staff told me how they handle the chickens, and I said, that's enough of the story. I've got it. I'll keep my live animals and my meal a little bit separated. But as I saw that, I thought, this is such a picture that we get in Jerusalem that week that Jesus went to the cross. You see, Jesus marched into Jerusalem on the bloodiest holy day, holiday of the year, called Passover, where everybody took lambs and they would slaughter the lambs. And literally, out of the temple, blood would flow. And they, they wrote in some of the Jewish writings that the Kidron Valley, it's the valley right below Jerusalem, was filled with blood. Literally, when Jesus was leaving to go stay the night in Bethany, he would have had to walk across the Kidron Valley that was filled with blood. And I can imagine his disciples trying to find something to stand on so their feet don't cover, get covered with blood. And it's a reminder. A reminder for us that our sin, because we've rebelled against God, we deserve death, yet Jesus came and he took that in our place. Today I want us, uh, we've been in Matthew's gospel, and I didn't want to pick back up this week knowing that a large portion of our congregation would be away. But I did want to go to a passage that I felt was very appropriate for today. We're going to look at Jesus, what many would say is his most famous parable. It's called the, the Good Samaritan. Many of you have heard of this parable. I would venture to say most of you, if you've been in church any length of time, you know this story well. It's a famous parable, yet oftentimes when we become familiar with a story, we can miss that the parables that Jesus told, they're like a diamond. You keep looking at them long enough and you see more and more beautiful angles of them. You see, Jesus talked in parables for a few reasons. To both conceal and reveal. He said, I'm going to conceal these things. The, the, the truth of the parable will be hidden from those who have a hard heart. They're not going to get everything going on in here. But to those 
who are children of God, who have uh, eyes of the Spirit, their eyes have been illumined and enlightened, they're going to see truth in these stories that will transform them. In Luke's Gospel, this is the first parable told. Luke's Gospel gives us the order of Jesus' life. So this very well may have been the first parable Jesus ever told. We can't say that with certainty. But it's the first one in Luke. So we're in Luke chapter 10. I want to read this parable. If you'll stand, it's Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37. Let's hear the word of our Lord. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to them, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he said to him, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. This is the word of God for the people of God. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. God, we're grateful that your word declares that all men are like grass. And all our glories like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But your word, O Lord, stands forever. May this be the word that is faithfully preached today, God, we recognize. Unless you speak, nothing of any true eternal significance will be spoken here today. So speak, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. We see in verse 25 that a lawyer. Now, a lawyer, most likely, they're, they're often referred to as scribes in the New Testament. These are people who knew the entirety of the Old Testament. In fact, They most likely had the entire Old Testament memorized. If anybody knew the law, it was a lawyer. Not only did they have the 
Old Testament memorized. They had many of the additional Jewish writings that had developed memorized as well. They knew the customs. They knew the traditions. They knew all sorts of things. So this lawyer comes to Jesus not to learn, not to get insight. It says his motivation is this, to test Jesus. He's coming as the professor. Does Jesus pass the test? Does Jesus fail the test? I've got a test for Jesus. I want to see how he engages with this. And he asked him a question. He asked him an interesting question because the question is flawed. He says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? A few things. We see right here the goal. What he wants to know about is eternal life. How do we live forever? How are we made right with God in such a way that we as sinners can enter his presence for all eternity? That's his question. But he says, what must I do to inherit? Now, most of us know what an inheritance is. Inheritance typically takes place, especially in my culture, like this. When, when parents die or a family member dies, they leave their material belongings and their material wealth to their children, their family members, their loved ones. They pass it on to them. That's what an inheritance is. It's giving something to your children. And here's what it's typically based upon. Their family. It's not based upon anything they've done. My children, probably won't be much, but the day the Lord calls me and my wife home, whatever that looks like, whatever we have left will go to the children. Most likely most of it will go to them. But they don't do anything to get it. They don't have to work. They don't have to earn it. They don't have to prove themselves. It's simply based upon this. You are my son. And I can say that because I only have sons. It goes to the children typically. So this guy's asking a question. What do I have to do to inherit? It's flawed. The answer could come back, hey, you don't do anything to inherit. All you've got to do is be a child of God. Then the man might say, what's it mean to be a child of God? And Jesus could have answered. But Jesus engages him right where he is with his flawed question. And this is how many people approach eternal life. Again, I've said this often. Every religion on earth, every man-made religion, all false religion at the heart teaches the same thing. Do this and you'll be made right with God. That's the heart of every false religion. That's why Christianity is so radical. We don't include that word do in eternal life. We focus on you inherit it, you receive it. Someone has paid the price for you. And here, Jesus, being a good rabbi, rabbis often spoke this way. You ask a question, you answer with a question. That's the way you communicated. And Jesus asked him a question. What is written in the law? Again, this lawyer memorized 
Jesus asked him a question, what's written in the law? This guy's going to know it better than anybody. And then he asked him a second question, how do you read it? So not only what's written, how do you interpret it? And this lawyer, he gives the exact same answer that Jesus will give during the last week of his life. In the last week of Jesus' life, they ask him, what's the greatest commandment? And he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, what's called the great Shema. That word Shema is a Hebrew word that means uh, uh, to cry out, to, to call. It can also mean to, to hear. So it's like, hear this, call out this, O Israel. So if you ask a Jewish person, what does it mean to be Jewish? Here's what they would say. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what you do. That's what it means for us to be children of God is to love him in that way. But the lawyer doesn't stop there. He says, love your neighbor as yourself, quoting from Leviticus. We in the Christian world, Christian community, we call this the great commandment. All of Jesus, the Old Testament, 613 commandments. All the, the heart of all the Old Testament commandments can be boiled down in those two things. Love God, love your neighbor. That's what we're called to do as Christians. And if we can do those things perfectly, then we're living in perfect obedience to God. Now, of these two, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I think any of us would look and say, we don't do that very well. Love him with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, all you are. But here's the thing about that. That one is difficult to prove. Someone could simply say, of course I love God with all my heart. We can't always see that one. That one takes place more internal between you and God. But the second one, love your neighbors yourself, it's got to have some outward expression. So the lawyer chooses to focus not on the internal, he focuses on the external. Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? How, what, what do you say, Jesus? Jesus tells him, if he does these things, he will live. But the lawyer doesn't stop there. That's what he wants to know. He's going to drill in, go deeper on this neighbor issue. He says, desiring to justify himself. Whew. We can spend a lot of time on that one. That's the flesh heartbeat of every human. We want to be justified. We want to stand in, in right situations. It, it takes place all the time. Husband and wife have conflict. You want to justify what you've done. You want to justify your position. Coworkers in a conflict want to justify. We always want to justify, and that's what he wants to do. I want to justify my position. So he asked Jesus a simple question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus doesn't just come out. This guy was hoping he'd say, hey, it's the guy who lives directly next to you. If you take care of the person in the house next to you, you're good. He goes, okay, got it. I'm going to focus on that person. You know, that's what he wants. He wants to walk away from this Question going, I know what to do. My neighbor is, I've got it. Jesus doesn't do that. He tells a story. 
parable. A man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now we hear that. It doesn't stop us. To a Jewish person here in this city, we go, wait, 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 what? A guy is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho? That's a dangerous journey. It's called the Pathway of Blood, 27 kilometers along. Remember, several years ago, I was with a friend in Israel, and we were driving from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, Jerusalem has green trees. I wouldn't call it full of greenery, but compared to what's around it, Jerusalem is incredibly green. Things grow there. Things live there. But you go about two kilometers outside Jerusalem and you're in the desert. Jerusalem is about 750 meters. Jericho, lowest place on earth. You drop down to the Dead Sea, lowest place on the face of the earth. And when you leave that 27 kilometers, that's not that far, but you're going down through a rock desert. Everything there is brown. There's nothing green as you go. Now, remember I was riding with this friend. He pulls off to the side of the road like there's nothing here. This isn't a location that people go to. This isn't one of the sites when people visit Israel they go to, but he just pulled over. And we walk up this hill and he says, see right down there. We see this narrow path. He says, that's the road that people would have walked, we believe, from Jerusalem to Jericho. And this path was right along a mountain's edge going down, down, down. And it was no wider than my arm span. It was narrow. So we read this story, we often think of a road like right out here where it's easy to see something on the other side of the road and go, there it is. Now this is a narrow road they're walking down. And he's going on a road that is terrifying. Jewish people would know that if you go on this road, robbers hang out there, danger can come. And sure enough, he fell among robbers. He says they stripped him. In the ancient world, you didn't really have places to store your money and your wealth. You know, we see the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, his coat of many colors. Many believe his coat of many colors would have actually had gold and silver and great wealth sewn into it. Because you didn't have a place to store your, your wealth, so you might actually wear it. So clothing would often have immense value. That's why you could tell somebody was wealthy by what they wore. So this man, his clothes are stolen because that's where his wealth would have been kept is actually sewn into his clothes. They stripped him, beat him, and depart. Again, Jewish person here in this story would almost go, serves him right. Nobody walks that road. What were you thinking walking the road from Jerusalem to Jericho by yourself? Why would you do that? It's risky. It's dangerous. Sure enough, exactly what we thought would happen, happened. You got beat. And listen what it says. He was left for half dead. That's an interesting phrase, half dead. What's that mean? Well, I think it simply means this. 
without some help, he's going to die. He's not dead yet, but his, without intervention, he's not headed toward life. He's headed toward death. He's not going to make it. He needs something to happen. This man is nearing death. But good news, a priest. Now, a priest could freely walk this road. Robbers, they're not messing with a priest. They'd be scared to mess with a priest. So the priest, he can walk down this road. He's coming from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's probably got priestly duties in the city. And he sees this man lying in the road. Now again, this road's not very wide. This man's body could have taken the entirety of the road. We read this and we go, good news. Somebody's coming. He needs help. Here comes the hero of the story. But it says the priest saw him and passed by on the other side. Some say the other side would have been him having to step over his body. Like there was almost no way. It's not like he was crossing on the other side of the road way over there. No, he literally had to try to skirt by this guy's body so he doesn't touch it because the priest does not want to touch him. Here's the reason. This guy's about dead. You touch someone in this condition, in Jewish culture, in this world, and the priest would be unclean, and the priest would have to go away and go through a ceremonial cleansing period before he could resume his priestly duties. So the priest looks at it and goes, hey, I've got work in Jericho. I'm going down there. I've got to keep going. This guy's about dead anyway. I'm not going to bother to check to see if he's okay. Let me keep going. My ministry will not allow me to stop and help this guy. So the priest keeps on going. Good news again. Likewise, a Levite. Levite, here is your job description as a Levite, servant. You serve in the temple. You make sure the temple has oil. You serve in various ways. But that's what you are. You are a servant of God. The servant of God is coming. It says he came to the place and saw and passed by on the other side. Again, the very people you would hope would come and help. Don't. Verse 33, Jesus takes a stunning turn with this story. But a Samaritan. Now when I hear the term Samaritan, I have good thoughts about it. In fact, when I went to college, the largest hospital in the town was called Good Samaritan Hospital. We speak of the Good Samaritan. We call this story the story of the Good Samaritan. That's not how Jewish people viewed Samaritans then. A Samaritan, back in 722 B.C., over 700 years before Jesus tells this story, a group of people called the Assyrians took over part of Israel. When they did that, they sent their people to marry the Israelites. And what they would try to do, this was their strategy, they would try to breed people out of existence. So they would marry you and bring you into their people and you would just become a part of that. 
Well, the children of those marriage were called the Samaritans. And the Jewish people rejected them. They rejected the Samaritans. So the Samaritans started their own religion. It was much like Judaism, but a little bit different. They worshipped at a different mountain, Mount Gerizim. And the Samaritans, they had a historic hate for the Samaritans. You see, a few hundred years before, a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, you don't have to remember that, but he was coming in to take over Israel. And the Samaritans said, you can come right through our land. Go get them. And they let them walk right through. So think of how the Israelites felt about the Samaritans. They literally called them, this sounds harsh, but they called them half-breeds. They did not like them. If you ask a Jewish person, who is the, who's the people group that you will racially discriminate against more than anybody else to be Samaritans? And here comes a Samaritan. He journeys. He comes to where he is and it says he had compassion. The, the Greek word for compassion, it, it means he's moved in his bowels. He feels it. Have you ever seen somebody in a situation and you didn't just logically go, they need help. Maybe I can do it. But you felt it. You see them in desperation and you literally feel their pain. That's what the word compassion means. Passion has the idea of suffering. Add compassion, the word uh, calm to it, and it has to suffer with. You see somebody suffering and you suffer with them. You feel it with them. You hurt with them. And that's where this guy is. It says he went and bound his wounds, pouring oil and wine. He set him on his own animal, took him to an inn, took care of him. The Samaritan stops. He probably didn't have anything to bind his wounds with, so he would have been tearing his own clothing, binding this man's wounds. This man is near dead, puts him on his own animal, so now he has to walk. Takes his oil, his wine, which was very expensive, cleans his wounds with wine. Wine was used for many things. Not just drinking, it was used also, it would, it would cleanse and he takes him to an inn, takes his money, pays his money, and tells the innkeeper, you take care of him. Can you imagine that man waking up? Last thing the man remembers, robbers taking his clothes, intense fear, people hitting him in the face, people abusing him. He passes out, falls on the ground. He's approaching death. His last memories is like, is this it? Is my life over? And then he wakes up in an inn, clothed, taken care of. And wonders, what happened? What happened to me? I was certain I was going to die, but somebody helped. What happened? And he says, Jesus tells him, the innkeeper, he's going to come back. He asks a question to the teacher of the law. 
Which of these three, the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, was a neighbor to the man who fell into robbers? The teacher of the law can't even say the word Samaritan. He just says this, the one who showed him mercy. Now the word he uses for mercy is, a, is, is the Hebrew idea of the word hesed, God's unearned, unmerited love. This guy shows him God's hesed love, the one who showed mercy to the man who was about to die. Now, when we read stories, oftentimes we'll identify the good people, the bad people, the heroes, the ones who come and save the day, the ones who make things worse. And when we do that, we want to identify with certain people in the story. So when we read this story, who is it that we identify with? Who is it that we look and go, that's who I want to be like, that's who I am? Well, probably none of us look at the priest and go, I want to be a religious person who when I see somebody in need, I ignore it. They're in need. I don't have time. I've got ministry to do. I've got spiritual business. I've got to keep going. I can't be bothered. Keep going. None of us look and say that's who we want to be. And yet, I'm sure I can make all of us feel really guilty right now. It's not that hard to do. We drive around our city. There is far too much need here. Like literally, if we tried to help every person in need... That's all we would do with all our time. We would use all the money we had and still probably look up, humanly speaking, going, I did not make any noticeable difference in this. We'd be so discouraged. So I can make us all feel guilty that we're not doing enough. That's not hard to do. But at the same time, I venture to say many of us are here because we were moved in our bowels, we felt it when we came here. Many of you look and you go, I feel the pain of those who are out, desperate, struggling. And I absolutely believe there's times that God moves us and we should absolutely give without thinking about it too much. There's also times that we can't meet every need. So I think that's part of the reality of this overwhelming need. I'll hear my wife say this often. She'll say, you know what? I don't, want to, I don't like how bad this hurts me, but I don't want it to stop hurting me. I don't want to become callous to the needs of the people I see here. And this priest, in his religion, had become callous. Same with the Levite. His job was to serve. What are you doing here? I'm here to serve. Some of our folks who moved here is missionaries, NGO workers, maybe even government workers. A lot of us look and say, why are you here? I'm here to serve. I see need, I want to serve. And sometimes we see a need before us and we don't meet it. That's all of us. Again, this isn't hard to make you all feel real guilty, right? I can make everybody feel like you're not doing enough, you're failing. So we can easily put ourselves as the villain of the story. Then we see the Samaritan. That's who we want to be. The guy who comes, 
sees a need, takes his time, takes his own animal, loses his own money to help this need, takes his own resources, pours it all in to help, to address the need of a total stranger. He doesn't know this man's name. He doesn't know this man's story. He doesn't know anything about this man other than he needs help and I can help. Sometimes it's that simple. They need help. I can help. So I'll help. That's what he does here. He steps in and he helps. And again, I'm not saying there's not times that we have to be intelligent in how we help and pray about it and be resourced and well um, thought through because we can't meet them all. But there are times that God just says, help, we just give. We're generous. That's what we're called to be. And that's what this man is. He goes and he takes and he says, I'm going to come back. He pays. Now we read this story, we want to be the Samaritan, we don't want to be the priest, we don't want to be the Levite, but none of those are who we are. That's not us in the story. Now we are walking through this life and sin beat us down. We didn't want to follow God. We wanted to live our own way. We wanted to do what we wanted to do, and we were beaten. We were left for dead. Our sin, death. Where are you headed in your sin? Death. You're half dead. That's who we are. Your sin's going to lead to death. That's what we're told in Genesis. Sin will lead to death. We're going to die. We are dead men walking, and we're left for dead. Here comes religion priest is coming by religion can you save me can the religion of the world save me somehow religion can't save you religion's not going to save you here comes the man of works the Levite he does good works he's coming to serve can works save me there's a lot of people doing lots of good works the good works will never save you. Here comes your enemy. Your enemy coming down the road. He sees you dead. He stops, bandages your wounds. He stops takes his own resources to meet your needs. He takes you to a place where you can have rest. And he says, I'm going to come back again and help them. I'll come back. I'll leave money to pay his debt. But if there's more, I'll come back and pay all the debt. I'm going to finish this. That's our story. Religion can't save you. Good works can't save you. You are left for dead. And our Savior Jesus Christ comes. He says, I'll pick you up. I'll put the dead man on my animal. I'll walk in their place. 
I'll take my resources, I'll take my wealth of heaven, I'll take all of that, and I'll spend it on this person that's nearly dead. And I'll leave them. And I'm going to come back. I'm going to return. I will return. I will come back. You see, in this story, no, we're not the picture of the Samaritan. We're not the priest. We're not the Levite. We're the man journeying on the road that's left to die. Hopeless. Nobody's coming to help. Nobody's willing to help. Nobody has the true means to save us except Jesus. He's the only one who has sufficient income. He's the only one who has sufficiently lived a sinless life. He's the only one who has sufficient resources to pay the price for us. And he comes and picks us up. Carries us to our home. Reconciles us to the Father through his mercy. The Samaritan had compassion. Jesus went to the cross because he saw our situation. He had compassion. He said, they can't help themselves. Religion can't help them. Works can't help them. I'll come help them. I'll come save them. And he was moved with compassion to suffer with us. To suffer for us. To suffer in our place. To take the death that we deserved so that we could live. The religious leader can't speak the words. He just says, the one who showed him mercy and says, go do likewise. Simple response. That's what we're called to do. Go do likewise. Go show mercy and compassion in the name of Jesus Christ to others. That's who we're called to be. To show this love to others. I pray as we read this story, again, it's a story I, I venture to say the majority in this room have heard over and over again. But as we do, we don't see ourselves as the hero. We see ourselves as the one who needed rescuing, needed saving, and that Jesus came to our rescue. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. Your word is good. It's true. I thank you that you spoke in parables. There's things I often miss in parables. You give very beautiful short stories that teach a powerful lesson and teach on multiple levels. So Lord, may we seek to be like the Good Samaritan. May we seek to be like you, knowing we can't do it in and of our own power, but only by you. May we go and do like the Samaritan did when we see need and you lead us to address it, that we address it. Keep our hearts from becoming hardened like the priest and Levite that walked on by. But Lord, most of all, may we realize we're that Samaritan or we're that uh, man walking on the road who got beat up, who was an enemy of God, and that you yourself came to our rescue. You're coming back. 
We long for the day that you return, Lord, but until that day comes that you return, may we be found doing likewise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.